Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I'm going to uh, start the series today by preaching a message that I'm entitling, One Master Jesus. Now, Matthew chapter 6, again, verse uh, 34 is kind of our text to start out our series. And and, uh, verse 24, I should say, where Jesus there on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, no one can serve two masters. He said, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. Andrew, God bless you, brother, for leading today. We celebrated you, and you weren't even in here, all right? Now let's celebrate Andy. I, mean, I just called you Andy. Andrew. Andrew, can I call you Andy? Does that work for you? No, it doesn't work. All right. So, so super, super, super thankful. Matthew six twenty four. he said, you'll devoted to one, and you'll despise the other. And then he makes this statement, Jesus. He said, you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't serve God and money. The spirit of mammon, okay, the spirit of mammon, he said, it's impossible to serve both of them. Well, when you think of this message, I began to prepare this week and started thinking and kind of reminiscing uh, of what God has done in this congregation up to this point. So now several years after relaunch and years now close uh, to uh, four years since we've had relaunch, just a little over four years The work of God's Spirit in this community, um, that He is ultimately the good shepherd of this church and has accomplished just transformation in the lives of individuals. And I just sat back this week kind of in a spirit of reflection and prayer and just praise God for what He's doing. Uh, For those of you um, who don't know, we just raised a little over $180,000. And it's a big week for us. Pastor Chad mentioned to you about our meeting, public interest meeting. And we're really at the cusp and verge of, of the next wave of what God wants to do. And so with that being said, I thought, you know what, maybe we'd start today's message a little different. And that is we give space to the Holy Spirit to rekindle maybe what had happened at the beginning, but then also help to inspire us about the change that He wants to bring in the lives of other people uh, in the months and years to come. So with that being said, let's just take a look at what God has done, just some snapshots over the last few years. Turn your attention to the screens. Praise God, isn't that awesome? It's exciting, so exciting. Can you believe, honestly, in the first few years of what God's done in and through our church, it um, it consistently just gives me such gratitude. I, I love to celebrate God's faithfulness. And uh, you've, you've seen just a little bit of how the, the church has been operating over the last few weeks, or last few years, I should say, uh, with that video. But the question that I want us to answer again in this season, and at the launch of this series called Two Masters, is this question. Is does the spirit that characterized that first generation of DP members still characterize us? Does the spirit that characterized those who set out in audacious faith, does it still characterize us today? You see, when churches get established, when they get planted and established, they experience kind of a if I can say it this way, a natural inertia. They move, and the great temptation is to move from mission to maintenance. In other words, what begins to happen is a lot of people start coming into the church who have never bought into the spirit that initially birthed the place. They never really understood, even maybe come to a place of appreciation of what actually happened in the early days. And in churches like Ours in America, we have a lot of people sitting on the sideline assuming someone else is responsible for it or someone else will get it done. I've often told you before, uh, uh, churches in America are a lot like Atlanta Falcons football games, right? You go to Atlanta Falcons football games, you got 22 guys on the field that are in desperate need of rest and you've got 82,000 people in the stands that are in desperate need of exercise, okay? And that's churches, right? You've got people that are ready to catch a breather. They're trying to catch a breather here. And then there are those who are, who are not engaged or sitting as spectators. Um, it's amazing because in our church, the dire need for church planting and gospel planting is, is as high as it's ever been. In 2010, we just hit about 338 million people. Uh, at that same year in 2010, we had 338,000 churches in America. Now they're predicting by 2050 there will be about 400 million people, 405, 
and um, we would need about 4,000 churches a year to keep up just with the population to be started. Now, you think, whoa, it's good news. There are 4,200 churches started a year in America right now, 4,200. But we're closing 3,700 at the same time. So we have a net profit of about 500 churches that we're growing by in America right now. We are so far behind the curve for what God wants to do in our generation in terms of church planning and have an adequate gospel witness in our communities. So it's a lot of workforce, a lot of vision, a lot of encouragement to say, Jesus, you are our master. What would you have us do in this season? And when I think about that, you know, over five years ago, there were people that gathered together and they gathered around Jesus and his kingdom and it was first priority and that expressed itself in many different ways. But they committed themselves to do whatever it takes to reach people for Jesus. Our mission here at Dwelling Place is... Our mission is to gather people to Jesus Christ, to lead them to biblical maturity for the multiplication of believers, leaders, and churches, that we are to gather them to Jesus, not ourselves, not another individual, not even to the church. Jesus builds his church with that which is gathered to himself. He gathered to Christ and Christ, then we walk along with them and Christ till they get to a place of biblical maturity. Why? So they can just be mature? No, so that their life or the life of Christ in them can be multiplied in the lives of believers around them, leaders around them, and ultimately more churches. Now, when that mission gets played out and it is coming to fruition, then we have what we call a preferred picture of our future. That's called the vision. And our vision is manifesting Christ in many ways to many people, right? So that when people are being gathered to Jesus and led to biblical maturity and multiplication, then what happens is Christ gets manifested in our culture in all kinds of different ways, right? That Christ-likeness is, we don't measure our churches by our seating capacity, we measure our churches by our sending capacity. That we as the church of Jesus Christ measure not just by the people that we gather, but we measure our effectiveness by how well are we able to infect ultimately the culture around us, the spheres around us with our Christ-like thinking, our Christ-like presence, and Christ-like witness? What is our penetrating power in the culture you and I live in? Now, it's really easy in today's world to be able to get discouraged. You look at our nation and you think, wow, you know, what, what is taking place in our nation? And so many times we don't clear the filter. And we come into church and we think somehow maybe the church of Jesus Christ is losing but I'm here to encourage us today, right? I know we turn on the news and some guy got pulled over last night in Odessa, Texas and shot people and then shot another 20 people and then stole a USPS van and shot her and killed the five people. And then Friday night in Alabama, a high school kid, 17 years old, goes and shoots 10 people at his high school football game. And this just proliferates. It's just sometimes we look at our culture and our nation, we're thinking, what in the world is going on? But did you know the church of Jesus Christ in America today and around the world, it is growing? It is growing. In fact, since last Sunday, 1.25 million people, a million 250,000 people have bowed their knee to Jesus Christ globally. In the last seven days. In the last seven days, we're part of the winning team. Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. And so we're a part of that in today's world. But the question is, does that spirit characterize us? We're sitting here now as a congregation that... Average is about 200 to 225 people on a weekend. We probably reach a little over 300 different people. Over these last few years, the last four years, we've baptized right at 50 people in baptism, baptismal waters, in immersion. We've planted over uh, this year two churches with the Surge Project globally. We helped to launch another church called Dwelling Place Orlando. Pastor Chad has updated you on that work. But even in the midst of that early embryonic stage, my question is this is does the faith and surrender that characterize that first generation, does it still characterize our generation? Does the spirit that characterize those who were the pioneers, does it characterize us in today? Because I believe, and I do unapologetically believe, the greatest things that God has for this church are in our future. That God has ultimately just began. He's not, he's not even, we're beginning to scratch the surface of what He wants to do, that the best is yet to come. And so we're starting this series today called Two Masters to talk about what it means to, again, resubmit ourselves to the Master. So as I was reading through this passage in Matthew 6, my attention began to move to the book of Colossians. And so in week number one, I, wanna, I want us to look in depth at Colossians chapter 1. If you have a Bible, I invite you to join me. Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to look at the one Master, Jesus. Now, the reason I think I've picked the book of Colossians for today is that in this short letter, it's very clear that this ain't about you or me. Yes, it is true. Jesus has done a lot of things for us. In fact, he's done more than anyone else. 
How many in here would say Jesus has done more for you than anyone else in your life? Amen? Yet it still ain't about us. It still ain't about us. That God saves us or saves me because he loves my neighbor. He wants to reach my neighbor so he uses me. I'm his gift to those that are yet not responded, have not yet responded to his grace and his love. And so we're going to go to Colossians 1, 15 through 20 today. And for the next four weeks, we're going to be working our way through the reality of what it means to serve one master. Now, a few things before we read the text about the letter itself. First, we know it was written during one of Paul's many imprisonments. Paul was in jail for extended periods of time. In fact, his, we could say the majority of his adult life was in prison. He was incarcerated for the gospel. And why? Because he refused to stop telling everyone he met that Jesus was Lord and that Jesus had risen from the dead. Secondly, you got to understand, Paul never met the Colossians. He never had met the Colossians. The church there had been planted by one of his missionary buddies or friends named Epaphras. Epaphras had planted the church in Colossae, and now Epaphras had shared back with the Apostle Paul, and he shared some things about the culture of the church that Paul now writes a letter back to be able to address those issues. Third thing, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward letter. We would call it a diplomatic letter, right? The, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans. It's been used probably more in church history than any other book. In those 16 chapters, Paul had never been to Rome at that point. It was a diplomatic letter based upon what his desire to meet them, but then also to tell and to address the issues of that church. Well, the Apostle Paul seems very concerned about two primary areas. Number one, he's concerned because the believers in Colossae seem to have been influenced more by the culture around them, and that culture had begun to warp their understanding of God. Their minds had been warped. They were what we call Gnostics. We have modern-day Gnosticism too, but God could not touch matter. Matter was evil inherently, so Jesus was kind of an emanation from the Father, but he never took on flesh. And so therefore, they could use their bodies for however they wanted to use their bodies. In fact, my spirit's saved. God doesn't care about my body. So they were having craziness, all kinds of sexual immorality outside of temples and shrines. I mean, they were doing it in the altars in Corinth. I mean, amazing, amazing wickedness. And you know, you hear people today, oh, America's is wicked. And we got the wickedness that the last 2,000 years has had. Really, it is. People separate from Jesus, a reprobate. That's what they are. Lost people act like lost people. Okay, people who don't know Jesus act like people who don't know Jesus. We should not be uh, surprised in the least bit with that. Now, the reality is that Paul is now writing to them and saying, hey, you've got to understand, you are being warped in your understanding. Here's the second reason he writes. He's addressing their concern about why he's always in prison. Because they're constantly saying, why, Paul? Like, if you are a servant of Jesus, if you're the, really the messenger of God, why all this suffering? So you know what Paul does? He writes in a letter to, number one, correct their view of God, but number two, tell them why he was willing to suffer and to sacrifice for the gospel and why they should be also willing to do so. Now, before we read it, the city of Colossae was a fascinating place. It was a, it was a very prosperous city. It was tucked away in the valley in the, valley in the middle of a, what we know as modern-day Turkey. And uh, when it came to the Roman Empire, it was a part of the Roman Empire, the Romans had two rules when it came to religion, two main assumptions. Here's rule number one. You can worship any god you want. You're fine. The Roman Empire is fine with you worshiping whoever you want to worship. You could worship Trion. You could worship Zeus. You could worship the spaghetti monster god. I mean, you could worship whoever you wanted to worship. But here's the second guideline of worship. You can never say your god is the only god. So you can worship whatever God you want, but you can't come to some exclusivity. or uh, You can't say, my God's the only God, because if your God's the only God, then you think that you're a superior peep to that subsect of Rome. And Rome wanted you to know they didn't care about your gods. They wanted you to know that they were in charge. So you can never say that you were God, or your God, I should say, is the only God. But you could worship any God you wanted. In fact, in the Roman cities, Colossae was filled with hundreds of maybe thousands of shrines and temples to all kinds of God. And the general mood was, you find the God that works for you. In fact, you kind of feel free to sample the smorgasbord of little g gods and kind of put together a, a, a trio that works for you. It's what I call a Build-A-Bear theology, okay? It's a Build-A-Bear theology. You assemble the deity that makes you feel good and is comfortable and you can snuggle with at night, okay? He's not dangerous. He looks kind of like you. You have control over him. Okay? You just assemble whatever God you want. You take characteristics from any God you desire, and you assemble this God. And this is the city of Colossae. The city of Colossae's culture had infiltrated the church, and so the believers had a lot of other rituals added to their faith in Jesus to ensure peace and prosperity. So imagine the Colossians like Americans. They had a Jesus and theology. They weren't outright rejecting Jesus. 
They weren't outright going against Jesus. They were saying, Jesus and. So Jesus, I'll serve you, but I'll also embrace the other things to supply whatever you are not going to give in my life, Jesus. So I know you're the Lord of glory, but you're not going to supply what I really need for living. So I'm just going to say yes to you, and then I'm going to supply whatever it is I need that might be lacking in my life. So what we call Jesus and. Not Jesus only theology, but Jesus and theology. Now with that context, let's read the apostles' words. This is what he writes. Verse 15, he is the image, Jesus, of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him, Jesus, and for him, Jesus. That means he's the originator of all things and he's the definer of all things because it came through him and it's for him. But he's not just originator and definer. He is, verse 17, before all things, and by him all things hold together. So he's originator, definer, and sustainer of all things. He sustains all things. He, verse 18, is also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. So what? Here's our verse. So that he might come to have first place in everything. He might have first place in everything. For God, verse 19, was pleased to have all of his fullness, the fullness of the Godhead, the deity, the Trinity, to dwell in the 5, 8, 150-pound body of Jesus of Nazareth. And through him, that Jesus, to reconcile everything. Most Christians are very ignorant about this. They think Jesus' death only procured or secured the salvation of the souls of man. No, secured the salvation of everything. One day, every T-cell. Every black hole, every cancer cell, every storm, everything is reconciled to Jesus through his blood shed on the cross. And it says whether things in earth or things in heaven, by making peace, there it is, through his blood shed on the cross. All things were created through him and for him. Now what does it mean when you say all things were created through him and for him? What well, means that Jesus is God, right? Well think about this. The only uncreated thing in the universe is God. The only uncreated thing. And if everything that was created was created by Jesus, and Jesus himself was created, then Jesus would have to create himself, which is impossible. Do you understand the apostle's logic here? He's saying if everything that came into being came through Jesus, and Jesus is created, that means Jesus had to create himself. So he can't create himself. That's impossible. So what you've got to understand is that God is the only uncreated thing. He is uncreated. He's unmovable. He has no beginning, he has no end. In other words, the fact that Jesus created everything that was created means Jesus is uncreated himself, which means he's God. So you follow that logic. Now, in fact, if you read Colossians 1, it's interesting, more so probably than any book in our New Testament, it mirrors Genesis 1. Colossians chapter 1 mirrors Genesis 1, pointing out that Jesus was the creating force at the foundation of the world. Proverbs 8 says the Spirit of God, of course, stood next to the Father as the Word was spoken, but Jesus spoke all things into being. He was the one who gave the creative Word. He was the one who engaged and spoke light, and light became. Jesus is the pattern by which everything came forth. Now, if you look at the word firstborn, it sometimes throws people off. It says he's the firstborn of all creation. And people assume, well, that means that Jesus is the first thing that the Father created. Jesus is the first thing God created. But that's wrong. As when, you know, sometimes like if in our language, if I say Knox is our firstborn, I mean that Knox, who is our nine-year-old, he was ultimately the first in my life. He, he was the first human that Mary and I created. In other words, in 2009, he didn't exist. In 2010, he did exist. But that word in Greek does not mean that way. Firstborn in Greek means position. In other words, we get the word prototype from it. So Jesus is the prototype of creation. He's the prototype or pattern of creation. He is the template on which all things were created. And he is the one for whom all things were created. In a couple of verses, Paul will say that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. Now that doesn't make sense. Because technically, he's not the firstborn from the dead. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Old Testament saints were raised from the dead. So when he says Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, what he's saying is he is the prototype of our resurrection. In other words, he's the model or the template by which we will be resurrected. We are able to look to him as the first fruits of resurrection. Now listen, y'all, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and a lot of other groups, they teach that Jesus was a great man. They teach that he was a great moral teacher. But they react strongly and sometimes even violently when you say Jesus is God. 
when you say he's actually divine. You want to know why? Because there is something inherently threatening about Jesus being divine. There is something inherently threatening about a divine Savior who was willing to voluntarily come to earth and give his life for sinners such as you and I. That's, that cross is very offensive to arrogant humanity. So when you say that Jesus is divine, when you say that Jesus really is God, see, if Jesus is a created being, even, he's, even if he's a super strong, super wise one, then you can look at him as like a dispenser of good moral advice. And you can put him alongside every other religious leader. But if he's God, the rules are altogether different. If he's God, the rules have changed. Why? It means that he's the center of everything. And everything else is measured by him. Are you ready, church? I want to give you a truth today, very simple, but let it resonate in your soul. You were created by Jesus and for Jesus. You were created by Jesus and you were created for Jesus. Just let that sink in. I told my kids the other night, it was, uh, I think it was Tuesday night, we were getting ready for school. And I was putting them down. I usually do bedtime, and I think my wife is downstairs teaching. And um, I laid the two oldest ones down, and I was in the same room with them, and I asked them a question, a little quiz. I said, hey, kiddos, were you created for mom and dad? And they thought about it. I said, were you created for yourself? In fact, I said, hey, were you created for a job? I said, Knox, what do you think? Do you think dad was created for Dwelling Place Church? And it sounded like, yeah, you're supposed to say yes. And they were kind of unsure. Did I catch him in a catch-22? What are they supposed to answer? Was dad created just to be your father? And I said, no, son, no, Marley. I was created for Jesus. And you are created for Jesus. You're not created to be a spouse. You're not created to be a son or daughter. You're created for Jesus. And secondarily, you might be a spouse Secondarily, you might be a son. Secondarily, you might be a member, whatever it is. But you were created for Jesus and you were created by Jesus. Which means, Knox, which means, Marley, my primary purpose in life is to know him, to understand and discover his will and to live it out. And I said to that little nine-year-old brain and that seven-year-old brain, right? I will only find fulfillment in life when I know him and I'm living out his purpose for my life. Son, I don't care how successful you are. I don't care what kind of job you get, what kind of grades you get. You will never be fulfilled young man until you know Jesus and live out his purpose for your life you were created by Jesus and you were created for Jesus not only that verse 17 he is before all things and in him all things hold together he's before all things last year I read a book and uh, you know without being said I guess I'm not a nuclear physicist but it explained I love science it explained that many physicists are still confused as to how the nucleus of the atom holds together. They're really confused about this because you see the nucleus of the atom, you know what I'm talking about, the atom, neutrons, protons, right? Protons positively charged, neutrons are neutral. You have electrons that are negative charged round about the atom. They escape the atom. They're called free radicals, antioxidants, blueberries, strawberries. They fight the free radicals. Free radicals cause cancer. We want to kill free radicals, right? But the amazing thing about atoms is that protons, which are positively charged, should repel against one another. When you put two positive charged magnets together, they repel one another. And so the physicists say something mysterious or invisible holds them together. Now, based on all we know right now about electromagnetic energy, every atom should fly apart. But in an invisible, stronger force, literally stronger than the electromagnetic force that, that, that literally holds it together. Now, Physicists, and this is a book I read, don't know what to call this force, so here's what they call this force, and I quote, quote unquote, the stronger force. The stronger force. Now let me be really clear, okay? I'm not saying it's the naked, I'm not saying exclusively the naked hand of God is what holds the atom together. I, I've seen some other physicists speculate that, but I am, I'm not saying that. Maybe God has built into the, to the quarks or the gluons or the electrons or something else we don't know about yet, some, 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 something in the atom that, you know, in the next century we'll figure out what holds it together and we'll figure that out someday. But the point is this. The point, church, and I want you to hear me, is that some incredibly strong force holds the nucleus of every atom together even when it looks like it should repel. And I'm here to tell you in the same way God holds all of history, 
and he holds all of your life together even when things look like they should tear your life apart, even when it looks like it should crumble into a thousand pieces. There is a God, there is a force that's keeping natural forces from unraveling everything in the universe. And the same hand and finger that wrote the history of the world is writing your story and my story. And in him all things hold together. All things. He sustains all things. Verse 18, he's also head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Here's our line. So that he might come to what? Have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him in bodily form. In other words, everything that God was, Jesus was. Everything that the Father was, Jesus was. Everything Jesus was, the Holy Spirit was. Everything the Holy Spirit was, the Father was. Everything Jesus was, the Father was. They're, they're one and the same. All one and the same. Three persons, one Godhead, and verse 20, through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things in earth, things in heaven, by making peace by the blood shed on the cross. Now, here's my summation of Paul's logic, okay? I'll just give you three quick points of my summation of Paul's logic. Number one, Jesus is first. He's first. Jesus is first. He's the creator of everything. He's the template on which everything else is made. He's the one for whom it was all made. The point is not that Jesus is, is, is just one of many beautiful things God has created. No, no. Jesus is the creating force and the, the purpose behind them all. So Jesus is first. Number two, Paul's logic is Jesus went first. He went first. He not only is first, he went first. This God, Paul says, he pursued a relationship with us even when we were not looking for him, y'all. How can we get over this? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God taking on flesh and pursuing people at the expense of his own life. Voluntarily pursuing us. He went to a bloody cross and he experienced humiliation and torture so he could buy our souls back voluntarily. If we just pull back from the text and ask the question, in any other story, who could really understand this? Who could understand this? He could have. He's God. He spoke the creation to existence. He could have just wiped the slate clean and started over and been none the poorer for it. You ever think about this? He could have created Adam and Eve sin. Let's start that one. I already created space and time. So since it's space and time, I can do away space and time and start space and time again. And as is God, I'll do that. And we'll try round two. But he didn't. He voluntarily took on flesh and lived in sinful humanity, and sinful flesh, and defeated sin in the body, and gave his life as a ransom for your life and for my life. It's mind-boggling. I remember I was 19 years old. I was at Lee University. I was sitting under one of the greatest professors for, I guess, spirit-empowered theology. His name is uh, Donald Bowdle. Multiple PhDs. His, his PhD dissertation was published in Notre Dame's actual book, actual textbook for undergrad. It's crazy. Smart guy, but I mean, he was old, old. Okay, he'd been at Lee University a long time, and I remember sitting in um, in in um, his class in multiple times uh, for multiple different classes. And I was sitting there in class one day, and we were—I think it was history of Christianity—and uh, here's this brilliant theological mind, right? I mean, I never forget my roommate one time. We we were just marveling at the fact how smart he was because he he taught with no notes all semester, and he probably quoted—I mean, five, six, seven hundred books, authors. Told you what year they were printed. Told you where to get them, what library. I mean, he just, just pulled it nonstop. And I never forget, uh, Jeremy, my friend, he said, I bet Dr. Bowder's read like 5,000 books. You know, astronomical. <laughs> I said, I think he's a little more than that. And we went to him and asked him. And, you know, he's such a humble man, but I think he's like 5,000. Yeah, by the time I was 35, you know, he's like 90. So he probably read, I don't know, 15, 20,000 different books. Brilliant theological mind. And I never forget, when we got to the Gospel of Matthew, and he's reading through the text of Jesus going to the cross. And he, he kind of, his chest got tight and his throat kind of got tight. And I remember tears started flowing down his face. And I remember him saying, he said, God dying for men. Who can understand this? And for my 19-year-old mind, I'm thinking, if anybody in the world could understand it, it's your brilliant mind. And this theological mind is mesmerized. Who can understand this? God dying for humanity? God dying for mankind? Who can understand this? That's why Paul says, 
since Jesus is first and he went first, guess what? Thirdly, we should put Jesus first in our lives. We should put him first in our lives. That kind of God that we said or talked about, couldn't he shouldn't be one, one priority on a list of other gods. He shouldn't be one of many priorities in your life. He's not just an important chapter in the story. He is the ultimate book in which every other chapter is written. He's in a class all by himself, Jesus is. I never forget, uh, in the third, by the end of the second century, um, the Roman Empire had uh, kind of succumbed to the influence of Christians. Christians were growing so fast in the Roman Empire that um, the Roman Empire, uh, the, the Caesar, the, the, uh, the actual leader, at the time the Christians had become so numerous that they said there's no use in stamping the Christians out. So the emperor one day says, I'm going to try to make peace with the Christians. So here's what I'm going to do. He's going to say, I'm going to let your Christianity exist. It can exist in the empire. But what we're going to do is we're going to put a statue of Jesus in the Pantheon. You know the Pantheon in Rome, big columns. And we're going to put a statue of Jesus right there in the Pantheon, right next to the Greek gods and the Roman gods. Now, you can imagine, this is a group of ragtag believers who are un, uneducated, ordinary fishermen from Galilee. And they've been, they've been persecuted for 150 years. Now, you can imagine, the emperor writes them a letter and says, Hey, we're going to put a statue of Jesus in the midst of the Pantheon. Now, how do you think that ragtag group of believers reacted? Woo! Are you, are you kidding me? Look, we finally arrived. Let me put it in modern day terms. One of our guys is in Congress. One of our guys, the good guys, is in leadership, right? Woo, we finally made it. That's not their response. They wrote back to the emperor, and here's what they said. You will not put the statue of Jesus in the Pantheon. And if you put it in the Pantheon, we will come and tear it down. And as long as you keep putting it back up, and there's one believer left in this empire, we will keep coming and tearing it down. And you say, why? Because on the top of the pantheon, it says Caesar is king of kings and lord of lords. And that position is only occupied by Jesus. And we aren't putting Jesus subjugated to some man. He's the only Lord. He's the only Lord. He's the only God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's not one of them. He is the only one. He's the only one. So Paul is going to say... What's true in your theology should also be true in your life. Look at verse 18, that he might come to have the first place in everything. Not just our theology. He wants to be first place in everything. So Jesus is not someone you put on a list of priorities. He is the page on which every other priority is written. He's in a class all by himself. He's not just important to us. He is the source of life. Now, I think about this all the time with my wife. Um, what if I went to my wife for 12 years, been married, been together 17 years now. So let's imagine I went to her one day, and I just said, hey, babe, I, I just want to tell you, I, I, I bet you feel elated. I bet you, do. I bet you're going to be excited. Because, babe, you are, you are number one at the top of my list of women. Like, you're number one. My assistant at church, she's number two. God, lady served us last night at the restaurant, she's number three. Lady I met at church last week, she's number four. No, she's going to look at me and she say, listen, Either I'm the only one on the list, or I ain't going on the list. And that's for a wife created in space and time. How much more for Jesus Christ our Lord? You think he's okay with being one on our list? No, he is the whole list. He is all that we are. He is the source of everything in our life. We are created by him, and we are created for him. In other words, some translations, I, I learned this verse in the New King James. It says he's preeminent. I love that word preeminent because it means he's the foundation. He's the center of everything. So here's my question. For you in the season, church. Here was my question Does Jesus hold that position in your life, or is he one of your many priorities? Is he source, or is he one of many priorities? Is he your master, or is he someone else? Uh, in other words, let me say it Is he important to you, or is he first? I know he's important to you. That's why you came to church on Labor Day weekend. You are the faithful remnant. That Malachi, the great Italian prophet, communicates. It's Malachi, but I like to say Malachi. Malachi talks about that faithful remnant. You, you are that faithful, faithful remnant. You're here. But my question is not, is Jesus important to you? I'm saying, is Jesus first to you? 
Over five years ago, there's a group of people in this church who said Jesus and his mission are going to be first. That was expressed in a lot of different ways. But number one, whatever we got to do to reach the lost, we're going to reach the lost. We're going to listen to the Holy Spirit. Number two, we're going to be a church that disciples people to Christ-like maturity. But here's what happens. Once the church gets established and settled, so to speak, we experience a natural inertia. And we have the temptation from moving from mission to maintenance. We go from being reckless in the mission of God to being comfortable in the institution. To being comfortable in that which is already established. I saw a chart this week in a book that I was reading, Macintosh, that, that really disturbed me about Western churches. And I, and I couldn't get it. We couldn't get it uh, typed out, but I got a picture of it. I want to show it to you, okay? This is the difference between a first generation and a second generation. Now listen, this is not just true of Jesus followers. This could be true of the Bible and the true of history, okay? And here's the difference between a first generation. A first generation person does whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. A second generation does only what I'm asked to do and when it's convenient for me and my family. When it fits the schedule of our family... What I'm asked to do, that's what I'll do. A first generation assumes personal responsibility. This is us. This is our mission. This is not Pastor Chad's mission. This is our mission. Number, second generation assumes someone else will do it. Oh, somebody else will take care of it. A first generation expects personal sacrifice. They come expecting that. A second generation expects personal comfort. I want to receive. A first generation sees problems and they seek solutions. A second generation sees problems and they complain. A first generation sees possibilities and dreams about what could be. A second generation sees barriers and reasons to quit. Oh, we're going to take us four and we're going to go somewhere else. A first generation hears the voice of God firsthand and owns the vision. A second generation inherits the vision secondhand and questions every decision leadership makes. A first generation steps out with bold, reckless trust in God. Faith in God. A second generation sets satisfied within the stability of the institution. A first generation fears holding back anything from God. A second generation fears commitment to God. A first generation feels privileged to be a part of the movement, but a second generation feels entitled to the benefits of the institution. My question for you is this. Which list best describes you? I didn't tell them in the earlier gathering, but let me say it in this gathering. Second generation faith is the death to any movement. Movements directly die via second generation faith. It's first generation faith that allows the mission to keep moving. That allows the movement form, generative form, the movement form of Christianity to take place in our culture. To take place in our cities, to take place in our nation. Let me give you an example of a first generation. There's a man in our earlier gathering, his name is Aaron. Aaron was not faithfully serving the Lord. Aaron joined growth phase as the Lord got a hold of his heart and he began to transform his life. We started a campaign four and a half months ago called His Blueprint. We're going to pay cash, $500,000 for 5.23 acres, about 1,000 yards from here. And, and uh, he, he's a first generation. The Lord started even speaking prophetically to him. He's a great author, a great uh, artist, and a really, really talented artist. And you know what he did? He said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take the personal ownership and I'm going to spend hours and evenings of my life creating all kinds of artwork. Christian artwork. And then I'm going to reach into the community that he doesn't live, by the way. He lives all the way over in Tequila. I'm going to reach into the community so that we get people to come in on a Saturday night for a silent auction. And I'm going to give the proceeds to the capital campaign. And he did all that work. He owned it. He took responsibility. And he brought people came. People purchased artwork. And he gave the profits to the work of God's ministry. That's first generation faith. First generation faith, this is a... Think of the young people that are in our church that years ago, four years ago, started an outreach on KSU's campus. KSU's campus, and they reached individuals. They started every Tuesday morning giving donuts and praying with people. I think of the, one of the first ones to be reached, Taylor, who's now a part of our church. And from that, started out a connect group. And we got connected to other people within the KSU campus. Why? They took per, That's first-generation faith. Now, listen to me. I have a number of emails on file from the last few years that would thoroughly represent second generation. And that's the reality. People of first generation, are they second generation? Listen, think about this. You right now, if you're in this church, you're experiencing the fruits of the bold, reckless, hear from God, put his kingdom first kind of people. That's why you're able to be here. You're the fruit of their audacious faith. I'm the fruit of the faith of those who's gone before me. 
And I guess what I'm saying is it's time for us in this season not to take our foot off the gas pedal. It's time for us to regain that first generation faith. To regain it and say, God, whatever so, do it in our day, Lord. I was talking to one of our leaders just recently, and this is what this leader said. He said, uh, Pastor Craig, you might be think this is dumb or dumbfounded by this, one or the other, I don't know. But let me tell you, what something, something's made so much sense to me. He said, I realize that all that I enjoy here is because of someone else's bold, audacious faith. All that I enjoy. And he said, but I was reading how when Moses passed the leadership to Joshua, Joshua had to make it his own faith. He was second generation. And I want to be like Joshua who inherited the accomplishments of a previous generation but showed my own faith going into the promised land. And here's what he said, and I quote, Our promised land are the people we're supposed to reach and we can't take possession of it through Moses' faith, the first generation's faith. He said we need to be the second wave of the first generation showing the same first generation faith. The second wave. Taking first generation faith. Listen, I believe, and I don't know how to say it other than say it this way. I believe this is a matter of life and death for our congregation. I do. I believe it's a matter of life and death for our community to do and be who God's called us to be, to be obedient to what God's asking us to do in this season. Folks, there are people still moving to Atlanta, Georgia. This last year, we're the third fastest growing metropolitan area in America. Dallas, number one. Houston, number two. Cherokee County, where we reside right here, Fastest growing metro county or a county in Metro Atlanta, we for the last three or four years, seventy eight hundred living units built in our own community. This last year, there are people to be reached. Yeah, traffic's going to be a nightmare, but we just went over five point nine million people in Metro Atlanta. They're saying nine point five million by twenty fifty. I mean, we're talking about major growth. We will surpass Washington D.C. Metro D.C. seven point. One million. They're saying that we're going to surpass that as Atlanta. There's college students to be reached. There's 90-something nations represented on KSU's campus. I mean, there's people. There's nations to be reached. There's churches to be planted. And I guess what I'm trying to say today is can we put our ear to heaven enough to hear the alarm clock of heaven and realize we have but one life to live? One life. And only what's done for eternity matters. The only things that will last forever are the word of God and people. So why don't we invest there? <laughs> everything else will fade away. Our jobs, everything we see will fade. But the word of God shall stand forever in people's souls. The lives of the pinnacle of his creation. So we have to, we have to invest and say, Lord, you're my master. Lord, I want to invest my life into what really matters. So let me ask you to consider personally two questions. Number one, what gets my first and best? What gets my first and best? Remember Paul said you should, he should have first place in everything. You know what that means? He should have first place in your heart. Jesus should have first place in your affections. He should be the one you love the most. He should be one you love more than anything. He should be the one you think about the most. A couple weeks ago, we had a tough week, tired season. Took my kids, take them to the playground. I'm going to sit on the bench. There's two things that are really, really good about that playground. Parents, can I get a witness? A place for the parent to sit down and a place for the kids to play free. You go as long as you want, kids. Y'all just jump off a cliff if you want to. But dad's just going to hang right over here. You just, whatever you want to do, run out in the road. I mean, you just roll in the grass. As long as you, your little heart wants to play, you just do it, right? So I'm nestled up on that park bench, sit down, and my two take off running for the swings, take off running for the slide. And then all of a sudden, my third one, my little one, she takes off running. She stops and she looks back. And then she comes running over to me. And she jumps up into my arms and puts her head on my shoulder. And gives me what I call unnecessary affection and desire. And I cannot tell you what that unnecessary affection and desire did for my tired father's heart. That she'd rather choose dad's chest than the swings. And I guess what I'm trying to say is in a world created with free will. We have no idea what it does to our tired father's heart. When his children choose to say no to the swings. And slides. And keep him first priority. Crawl into his lap and let him lavish his love on us. Whether it be in our kitchen. Our dorm room. Our bedroom. Or the cab of our vehicle. That Lord I want to abide in your presence. Lord I want to. I want my desire. St. Augustine called it salt on your lips. Lord keep salt on my lips. To consistently desire you again. 
Oh, consider the height from which you've fallen. He said to Laodicea, you've forsaken your first love. To go back, to say, what gets my first and best? First and best in your obedience. What he wants should be the first consideration in anything we do. First and best in our priorities. Everybody say three areas. I want to talk to you about God's agenda should rule our life in three primary areas. Three expressions. Number one, in your time. Does God get the first and best of your time? First and best of your time. Do you spend more time teaching your kids how to throw a slider or teaching your kids how to follow Jesus? Do you spend more time teaching your kids how to dance or how to faithfully follow Christ? It's a great question to ask. Is who gets the first and best of our time? Do you spend more time worrying about climbing the corporate ladder or do you spend more time worrying about following Jesus? Of all of our weekly commitments, and folks, we're all busy. We're Americans. We're 21st century Americans, right? We're all busy. We're all moving Seemingly, sometimes feeling like at 100 miles an hour, but God has called us to lead life, not respond to life. And when you think about that, when you are tight, your family's tight, what's the first thing that gets cut? Is it the things that pertain to the kingdom of God? Like, oh, this is a busy week. No connect group tonight. Can't do that. We can do everything else, but we can't do connect group. Oh, this week, no, no discipleship class for me. Volunteer ministry? No, 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 I got to cut that first. Ministry opportunity? I got to cut that first. What gets cut first in our life? That's a telltale sign of what is first in our time. Is Jesus and his church first in our agenda, in our time, or is it what we want? Secondly, in your talents. In other words, think about your talent. When you think about your talent or your career, my question for us is, does the kingdom of God get first consideration? First consideration. God gave you a talent for a reason. Your workplace is a mission field. You should see your job as a means to get into the place to bring the gospel to the people. Yes, it's to get money to support your family. It should. That's all rightfully, right? You should be. You should do that. But it first and prim- primarily is about his kingdom, that I use the financial gain for his kingdom. Which leads me to number three. Is he first in your treasure? Never the next four weeks, we're going to ask questions about our treasures. Who or what gets the first or best of our treasures? I want you to think of what you do with your money in two categories. I want you to think of about the good enough category. And then I want you to think about the first and best category. Now think about this for a minute. Some things you really want to strive to get the best in in life. And sometimes you're willing to live with just good enough in order to get the first and best of something. Let me illustrate this. Couple. Late 20s, early 30s. Get a realtor. They've got a budget. Bottom they're going to spend, bottom line, top line. What does the realtor do? Takes them to the house, first one, just just a little bit higher than the top. That's what realtors do. So they take them just a a bit above their budget, and then they get them there and see the house. Oh, oh God, can you see our family? I can see our family. Can you, you, babe? Can you see our family? You see the kids coming down the steps. Oh, what would it be like to eat watermelon in the summer on that front porch swing right there? And, And so we look at it. We get exposure to the house. We look at the house, right? And then when we look at the house, all of a sudden, while we're staring at the house, okay, we make the statement, you know, well, it's a little beyond our price range. We... I don't think we can do it. But they step back and say, but, but look at the house. And then one of the spouses steps in and says, you know what? I think we can do it. But you know what? In order to do it, put our first and best in the house, we're just going to have to do good enough in other things. So we're not going to be able to upgrade our cars. Okay? We're going to have to, this is going to be bad. But we're going to have to limit our Netflix screen access from four screens in the house to two. It's going, to be, it's going to be purgatory, I understand, but we're going to go from four to two. We're not going to be able to go to Starbucks four times a day. No more Starbucks trips four times a day. Okay, We're going to have to stop downloading every app that's new on Instagram. You know, like we're, I think we can do it, but let me give you another example. That same couple's now in their 40s. Little Johnny's ready for college. We want little Johnny to go to the best college possible. So here's what we do. We get our first tuition bill. Now, tuition bills are ungodly. They're satanic. I mean, they're fully from Satan. So, and parents should give a good hearty amen right there, okay? So you get the tuition bill, and they say, how are we ever going to afford Johnny to go to school? How could Johnny make it happen? And then all of a sudden, one of the, st- the parents like, but I really wanted to. And they, mm, mm, ooh, I, yep, I just thought I had an idea. Yep. It's a movie line, by the way. Um, I think... We can do it, but if we do it and put our first best intuition, 
then that means we're just going to have to get along with good enough for the other areas of our life. Now listen to me. I have absolutely no problem. There's nothing wrong with putting some things in your family first in your life. No problem at all. My question is why we rarely, if ever, ask that same question in light of our giving. Oh, what's the first and best Jesus wants from our family? And then, you know, we just might have to live good enough in every area of our life. You know, what's the first and best that we can give to his kingdom? What's the first and best that we can give to the lives around us, the people around us? Instead, here's what we do. We say, how much can we afford after all those other commitments are filled? We say things like this. How much can we give after we get the kind of house we want to live in? How much can we give after we go on the vacations we think our family should go on? How much can we give after we drive the kind of cars we want to drive and wear the kind of clothes we want to wear? How much money can we give after we achieve the lifestyle we want and after we send our colleges to the colleges that we want them to go? After all these things, what then can we afford to give leftover to God? And can I just say with unction today, Jesus as the master does not deserve our leftovers. He does not deserve our leftovers. He deserves the first place in everything. Have you ever been invited to someone's house and they'd served you leftovers? Anybody ever done that? Mashed potatoes, this morning's bacon, limp french fries. Like how would that make you feel, right? You know, the food just ain't no good. I mean, the macaroni's soggy, the peas are mushed, and the chicken tastes like wood, right? Some of you 80s rap, that's Rapper's Delight right there. Did you see that? I just, I just rapped right here on stage. But, but that's old 80s rap is the best rap, all right? And, and so the, you, got, you go to a house and all of a sudden they're, they're feeding you limp french fries. You're going to be like, what's going on? You don't feel too, you know that that meal was prepared for somebody else and then you just got the leftovers of it. Or imagine some dignitary came over to your house and you just gave them leftovers. It would insult them. Jesus didn't come and doesn't deserve our leftovers. He's first. He went first, and he should be first in our lives. Now listen to me. I'm almost closed. Jesse, come on. I'm not saying very clearly. I'm just saying that in this season, I don't think this season of Dwelling Place's life, I don't think this season about, is about us getting to a respectable, good enough level of giving. Instead, I want to ask, what percentage do I give? What is the level of the giving that declares unequivocally Jesus' firstness in my life? Not, not what's good enough. Uh, you, you say, Craig, you're talking about just finances? No, I'm talking about your time, your talent, your treasures. Not just what's good enough, but what's first. What unequivocally says Jesus is first. Let me make it personal. Some of you, maybe you say, you know what? I, we've, been getting good, we've been giving good enough, and we're not ashamed. If anybody knew what we gave, it's not a bad figure. We're not ashamed. But you know what? In this season, God's challenged us to do more. You're the reason I exist, God. You're the whole page on which the chapters of my life are written. And if you wouldn't have reached out first and gone to the cross to save me, where would I be? Where would I be? Who would I be? And I want something that when my kids see it, they see how mom and dad live. They see what mom and dad put first. They say, you know what? That's changed our family. I've used this analogy before. I'll probably use it many times. When you sit down for a breakfast of bacon and eggs, both the chicken and the egg had a part in bringing it to you. Or excuse me, the chicken and the pig, I should say. The chicken made a contribution, right? But the pig went all in. <laughs> The chicken made more like a transaction. Dropped an egg and tomorrow it'll drop another one. But the pig, however, is fundamentally changed by that experience. Fundamentally decimated. I guess what I'm saying is my wife and I, we don't want to be chickens in our giving. We want to be pigs. Pigs for Jesus. What a great t-shirt. Pigs for Jesus. All in for Jesus. Slice us up like bacon. Sausage patty, here I come, right? I want, I want my giving to fundamentally change my family. I want my giving to fundamentally change the giver. Not just be a transaction. God, what could you ask? 
you know what, Pastor Jed, I was thinking about the other day, you know, we raised $180,000. I think if we somebody came to us tomorrow and they gave us $80 million, wrote a check, praise God, hallelujah, let it be. I think the reality is, in terms of us as next step, that we would be able to come before this congregation and still do what we just did because it's not about a figure being met. It's about us putting Jesus first in our finance. If somebody met every need, then we would just rob you of the opportunity to put Jesus in an uncomfortable generosity, an uncomfortable stretching that he really is first in your life. That he really is. God, I put you first. So here's my challenge to us in this season. Does your giving say leftovers or say first? Now, some of you say, Pastor Craig, I'm in a different place. I'm not thinking about nice clothes and new cars. I can barely afford to pay the bills. My children are eating cereal with a fork to save the milk. Right? I go to the park and ducks throw bread at me. You know, so, like, like, We're not talking about nice things here. I get it. But let me tell you, there's still a first for you. You know what that first is? Matthew 6, 33, put first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Best illustration I've seen this is a pastor, pastor in our nation. Had a young couple who came to know Christ. They're ready to start tithing. Felt like the Lord asked them to give their first and best and they come to the pastor and they say, Pastor, we really want to obey God in the tithe, but you know what? When we give God the tithe, we just we can't make ends meet. And he said, I understand what you're talking about. He said, I want you to write what your first and best is. Write it down on a check. He said, how about this deal? How about you put it, you write it, you give it to me. I'll put it in an envelope, I'll seal it. I'll put it in the top drawer of my desk and I will not touch it. I will not cash it. On the last day of this month, you come to me and tell me, if you can't make the ends meet, I'll get that out. I'll give you the check. You rip it up. How about, does that sound fair? They said, okay, it sounds fair. He said, you trust me with your check? You trust me to put it in my desk? They said, yeah, we trust you. He said, shame on you. You just declared that you trust your pastor and his desk more than you trust Jesus because that's what Jesus promised to do to you. That when you give it to the Lord of glory, he meets every one of your needs according to his riches and glory. You seek first his kingdom, all those other things are added unto you. Who is first? Who is first? Here's the second question in our end. Not only what gets my first and best, but number two, am I listening to the Holy Spirit and obeying him? Am I listening to the Holy Spirit? In the book of Acts, when the church was growing enormously, it was a group of people simply listening to the Holy Spirit. 59 times in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit shows up. 36 out of those 59, the 36 times of 59, he speaks clearly to the person. What that means is that we've got to ask the Lord to remove any skepticism we have about hearing from God personally. That dads like to talk to their kids. And our father wants to talk to us. He wants to communicate to us. Here's what's amazing to me. One simple act of obedience did more than what all the apostles could do together. You know my favorite story of this? Acts 1, what did Jesus say? Go in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And he trained these 12 disciples. And they grow by the thousands, but here they are eight chapters later, and they're still singing Kumbaya around the Galilee shore in their connect groups, but they can't get the gospel outside Jerusalem. They can't get it outside. So you know what God does? He speaks to not a super apostle. He speaks to a guy named Stephen, Philip. And when he speaks to Philip, Philip, he says, Philip, I want you to go out into the middle of the desert, down the road of Gaza. Go out, you know, where that one little blinking light is, right in the middle of the desert, two roads meet. I want you to go out there. Stay. He gets out there. God, what do you want me to do? All of a sudden, here comes this big chariot. Ethiopian eunuch, remember? And he goes over and he says, run and stand next to it. He goes and stands next to it. I don't know if it stopped or not. Scripture just kind of says he's still going. I don't know if he's like running and reading at the same time. But he jumps in, he looks, and he says, Hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch said, no, how could I understand? He's reading from the prophet Isaiah. He preaches the gospel to him. He baptizes him. And you know what happens? The third century historian, church historian, Eusebius, said this is what happened. After that young man, that eunuch, got left Jerusalem, and he speaks, and he understands Jesus Christ, it says the eunuch went back to sub-Saharan Africa. He planted a church, and then he planted a church planting movement that is still in existence today. Do you understand what happened? The Holy Spirit, by one simple act of obedience from an untrained, unfunded, unresourced saint of God, accomplished more for the Great Commission than all of the apostles with all of their talent had been able to accomplish for seven chapters. Because one man, one woman, heard the voice of the Holy Spirit. Obedience to the Holy Spirit. Obedience to whatever God asked. In that season, 
I believe the future of our life and our church depends on it. I believe the future of our community depends on what happens as we continue to move forward. And I believe our spiritual walk depends on this. So here's what I want you to do. Two things. I want you to consider, if you've not considered, to be a part of a connect group. To get involved in a connect group. Connect groups happen twice a month. Get involved in a connect group. You say, well, I'm going to do it next week. Well, last week you said next week, and the week before that you said next week, and now we're next week, next week. So today, you, you, you hop out in the lobby and you say, man, we're going to plug in. Here's the second thing. If you've not been a part of growth phases, get signed up and be here this Thursday, 7 o'clock. Say, Craig, uh, can I get a trial run? Yep, you can get a trial run. We're so gracious like Jesus today. We're going to give you a trial run. You come for three weeks. I told somebody in our community this week, come for three weeks. Three weeks. And you say, we're, it's heretical and it's horrible and you already know all this, then we'll say, God bless you. Amazing. But just come for three weeks. Three Thursdays, 7 o'clock. Just engage. Engage your heart. Engage your mind. And yes, we're going to continue to have number goals as we continue to give. But that's not what primarily this is about. What this is primarily about is us coming up with something that def- definitively demonstrates Jesus is first. He's the source of my life. I look back at great affection with those first people who started. They were courageous. They were selfless. They stepped out in audacious face, faith. But my question is, will this generation offer ourselves anew and afresh for what God wants to do in this next season? Some of you are your first time here and you're thinking, woo, I picked a weird weekend to come visit. Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe God brought you to join us in this movement. Maybe coming this week wasn't an accident. God wants you to jump in and be a part. So can I challenge you over the next four weeks as we unpack this? All sermon series are important, but this one's especially so. So if at all possible, can you prioritize being here? Prioritize this September being in church on Sunday. God, what you're doing in our hearts could reshape our future for the next two years, next 20 years as we follow after what you desire for our life. Come on, band. I want to end by reading the message translation of this passage. Amazing, amazing scripture if you'll go to it. Verse 19. We're going to read verse 30. What's this? Jesus said, don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths and corroded by rust or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is is the place you'll most want to be. And you end up being. Your eyes are windows into your body. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body gets full of light. If you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body's a, a dank cellar. No one talks like Eugene Peterson, does he? If you pull the blinds on your windows, what a dark life you'll have can't worship two gods at once. Loving one God, you end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. You can't worship God and money both. If you decide for God living a life of God worship, it follows that you don't fuss about what's on the table at mealtimes or whether the clothes in your closet are in fashion. It's far more to your life than the food you put in your stomach, more to your outer appearance than the clothes you hang in your body. Look at the birds, free and unfettered, not tied down to a job description. Somebody said amen. Careless in the care of God. And you count far more to Him than birds. Has anyone by fussing in front of the mirror ever gotten taller? By so much as an inch? All this time and money wasted on fashion, you think it makes that much difference? Instead of looking at the fashions, walk out in the fields and look at the wildflowers. They never primp or shop, but have you ever seen their color and design quite like it? The ten best dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside these flowers. If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which we've never even seen, don't you think he'll attend to you, take pride in you, do his best for you? What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax. Not be so preoccupied with getting so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way He works fuss over these things. But you know both God and how He works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Finally, give your entire attention to what God is doing right now. Not tomorrow. And don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when the time comes. Right now. Right now, what does God do? And I had a great meeting this week, church, with the principal at Clark Creek Elementary. We've been praying for the last few years for an inroad into an elementary school. This is the most needy elementary school in Cherokee County. 
It's also the second largest. I didn't know this, but there's 1,600 elementary kids in that one school. And I had a meeting with the principal this week, and I just felt like, man, this is one of those God moments. We connected. Her and her husband, I think, will be in church here this next week. But she took me through the school and toured. And I said, man, this is an awesome conversation because we, we said we want to serve your school. And she said, well, you can, you can come and do teacher breakfast if you want. I had no problem with that. She said, you'll feed them all the donuts, and then they'll say, now, who gave this again? She said, that's not what we need. We need people who want to serve the families, the hurting families. You know what she did? She said, I want your church to be a part of the Watch Hogs. And I said, what's that? She said, for the next 12 months, we've already got the Fridays picked from 8 till 12. We really desperately need people to come in and mentor our children, build personal relationships. You can build a relationship with the parents. You can meet with them outside. You can read to them. Some of them you can help deliver, help, help uh, uh, car rider line in the morning time. You can help in the schools with physical projects, but you can build relationship with these students. She said, we desperately need men because when we see men in the school, these kids come flocking to them. There's 12 uh, nations represented at that school. Uh, it's Ugandans, Nigerians. It's like a melting pot right here next to 75, right down the street from us. So this Friday night at 6.30, I'm going to be a watch off. I invite you to join me. A lot of people come to the school and their jobs require uh, community service. The school will sign off on it. You'll be paid for it. People are coming to the school, mentoring others, are getting paid by their own employees. So I had some people in the early guys say, yeah, I want to do it. Well, then this Saturday, uh, this Friday, join me at Clark Creek Elementary, 630. We'll go through a meeting. And then every Friday, you can schedule for the next months to join us, to love on students, to be able to love on families that are deeply unchurched. And let's see the kingdom of God continue to be expressed in our own community. Amen, church? God has called us for this hour. He's called us for this hour. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.